Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 530 at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, as I'm sure you've all noticed, we are currently in underway in one of the most interesting Canadian elections that's ever happened. Many of you have watched the McLean's debate some time ago between uh, NDP leader Thomas Mulcair, uh, Conservative leader Stephen Harper, and of course Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, and uh, even Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, was there for some reason no one can adequately explain. Well, one of the things that was very noticeable about that debate is that social issues were not discussed at all. There was no moral discussion about anything that was going on because at the end of the day, of course, discussing the economic health of our country, the fiscal health of our government, uh, our foreign policy, all these things are very essential. But it's important to recognize that the moral health of our country, obviously, is extraordinarily important. And this is something that a lot of people forget. People write off social conservatism and people forget that our country is supposed to have a conscience, or they think uh, that a country's conscience is dictated by tax codes or by fiscal policies that really have nothing to do with whether or not our nation is conducting itself and, and passing policies that protect the weak and defenseless uh, and, and ensure that our, our nation has a moral character. And I wanted to talk to a, a politician that actually believes in the principles of social conservatism and that could offer a little bit of insight into how this election is going and where social conservatism should play into it, but also uh, how social conservatives should react to a rapidly changing political system. So the other day I phoned a current member of parliament, an outgoing member of parliament, Rob Anders. He's a, a conservative politician from the riding of Calvary West, and he's been representing that riding since 1997 uh, until 2015. He was one of the founding members, actually, of the Conservative Party of Canada. And he's always gained a bit of uh, notoriety as a very vocally socially conservative backbench member of Parliament. He was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, graduated from the University of Calgary uh, with a, a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science. And uh, he's, he's somebody who has always been very willing to speak out on issues like abortion. I remember hearing him at the Canadian March for Life and urging Canadians, pro-life Canadians, to get involved in how to change things. Now, Rob Andrews was originally elected as a member of, of the Reform Party. Many of you will know this is a party uh, created by uh, Preston Manning, and he converted to the Canadian Alliance Party in 2000. That was the first election I really noticed at age 12 when when Stockwell Bay came through the, the city I live in, the Chilliwack, British Columbia, to campaign there. He's actually served in a number of different critic uh, roles in opposition. He was a critic of the Senate, and uh, still is, and probably always will be. He was a, an associate critic for the Human Resource Development. And additionally, he was an associate critic for citizenship and immigration. One fun fact that, is that along with uh, Jason Kenney and a number of others, he was part of an up-and-coming group of, of young reformers. And these people have really shaped the political debate in many ways. So I called, uh, I called Rob Anders up to have a discussion about social conservatism in Canada and what social conservatives can do to make their voice heard in the political sphere. 
So here's a discussion with uh, Member of Parliament Rob Anders, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as I did. To start off, of course, this is one of the most interesting elections uh, that we've seen in, in a very, very long time. And uh, as somebody who started off as a Reform Party MP and sort of saw all the different transitions of uh, of Canadian conservatism accumulating uh, in the in the 2011 election, how do you, how do you see things playing out? You know, a lot of times election campaigns are really about the stuff that goes on in the back room, and I know that a lot of times the public and the media pay attention to the the horse race, as it were. But for those of us who, you know, fight these things on a regular basis, we know a lot more about what goes on behind the scenes. I have all sorts of opinions with regard to how I think the campaigns should be fought by the various parties, uh-huh. but I reserve those comments usually in-house because the consequences can be very dire. Of course, of course. In regards then to uh, to social conservatism specifically, uh, I've heard you speak at the March for Life when you talked about uh, those who, yes. who who are passionate about the abortion issue, how they have to work hard on the grassroots level. And many of yes. of my That's friends, right. for example, are volunteering for for various uh, pro life MPs. I've, I've I've got a sign out, uh, you know, promoting my pro life MP in my riding. Um, more and more, I think it's it's being seen that that the pro life movement is, is getting younger. It's getting louder. It's it's certainly growing. Um, from your perspective, how have uh, how have you been watching the sort of abortion debate unfold and and the pro life movement uh, uh, try to make an impact? Well, I think one of the key things that is happening, and and the more it's embraced, the, the bigger the successes we'll have, is incrementalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it breaks my heart that, you know, early on, generation ago, you had a million signatures that were collected across the country by people who were pro-life, and those were submitted, you know, with regard to, I think it was probably Kim Campbell's Bill C-17 that would have uh, eliminated third uh, trimester abortion. And had those been databased, had those been harnessed and turned into a third-party organization like a Campaign Life Coalition or something of that ilk, it would have been a 300-pound gorilla that would have thrown around all the political parties, and if it said uh, jump, the other parties would have asked how high. So I, I think that there's a lot of good intent with regard to the pro-life cause and a lot of prayers. But, you know, the the organizing is absolutely crucial. Um, There's a great expression that my friend Morton Blackwell publishes from the Leadership Institute, which says that, you know, you may pray as if it depends upon God, but you work as though it depends upon you. Right. And you've been on Parliament Hill for a very long time. Do you think eighteen me- years? Yes. Yeah, members of Parliament of all parties. Do you think uh, that they feel the heat from the pro-life movement? You're looking at this uh, no. from a no. very no, no, they haven't. No, no, no. In, in order for them to feel the heat from the, uh, the the pro-life movement, you need to be able to mobilize hundreds, if not a thousand, people 
for the nominations in the respective parties. There's the odd time where I've seen numbers like that mobilized, mm-hmm. but those numbers have to be mobilizable on a fairly constant basis in order for a political party or candidates to actually fear the movement. If, you know, the average nomination contestant can win a nomination with probably 500 votes. Right. Um, if they get 1,000 votes, uh, that's quite exceptional. And if they get 1,500 or something to that effect, that normally would seal the deal. The, the biggest nomination that I've ever faced was when I was up against Allison Redford. And at that point in time, we had about 3,300 people that uh, cast uh, that were eligible to cast ballots. Now, of course, not everybody shows. So I think on the first ballot, I had 1,143 or something to that effect, and she had 900 and some. And uh, then, of course, the the fourth and third place people dropped off the ballots, and and I won. But that was the biggest battle. Uh, you know, that, that uh, numbers-wise, that showed up in my riding. In this last go-round, uh, you know, we had around, we, we once again, we probably had uh, coming close to 3,000, around 3,000 memberships, but once again, about 2,000 people voted. So, you know, if the pro-life cause can mobilize 1,000 people uh, in a given riding, then, uh, yeah, th- then, then they have a voice that politicians heed and fear and will pay attention to. But mm-hmm. and, until that is something that is that can be replicated riding to riding across the country, it will not be feared. And things have, have sort of dramatically shifted since last year because traditionally there were pro-life members of parliament, about 10% in the Liberal Party, and then quite a, a very large number of, of conservative members of parliament like yourself uh, who, right. who were pro-life. And now, of course, Justin Trudeau has adopted the the NDP position of saying that his members of parliament have no freedom of conscience on this issue, that pro-life MPs must either leave the party or vote against their conscience, or I I assume abstain entirely. How does this this completely change the situation when, more or less, for pro-lifers, all our eggs are in one basket for the time being? Well, I I hope what happens is is that pro-lifers embrace the Conservative Party as the, the party that is open to their viewpoint, you know, there was a transformation in the United States where uh, pro-life activists got very heavily involved in the Republican Party uh-huh. and have changed the Republican Party to the point where, I mean, in the 60s and the 70s, 80s, etc., a lot of these things were open for debate. Yes. But by the 1990s, uh, after Reagan had, uh, you know, Goldwater first had been, you know, uh, elected as a candidate that championed a lot of uh, conservative ideas and, and was happy with a lot of those activists inside uh, his fold. Reagan was somebody who not only got nominated, but actually got elected uh, based on that. And, you know, after Reagan, you had Pat Robertson, who ran for the Republican presidency did very well in places like Virginia, for example, and really showed the might of the Christian coalition. Mm-hmm. Now, as a result of all of that, since the 90s, basically, the Republican Party has become a pro-life party. Right. And if somebody is running for the Republican cause at this stage now and does not espouse uh, pro-life views, probably has a serious problem 
you know, getting to be the Republican on a ticket. So I, I would hope that pro-life activists uh, engage the Conservative Party in the way uh, that pro-life activists engaged the Republican Party in the 1990s. Right. But that, that is that type of organization that either Ronald Reagan or certainly Pat Robertson was able to bring to the Republican Party is essential for that type of transformation inside Canada. Right. So basically, uh, it was Phyllis Schlafly and, and her people who fought uh, convention wonderful by convention. Wonderful woman. Yeah, to, to, to put one, it one, Wonderful woman. I have tremendous, tremendous respect for Phyllis Schlafly and Eagle Forum and uh, all the, the good work that uh, she has done. She is a fantastic speaker. I've been down at the Conservative Political Action uh, Conference over the years, and uh, I always look forward to uh, Phyllis Schlafly speaking because she is so pure and energizing and inspiring and uh, absolutely distilled conservative perspective. She's a, a great uh, icon of the movement. Uh, absolutely, and, I, and I've spoken with her before, and she's sort of described much of uh, of what you have in terms of organization. But we have an interesting situation here in Canada where Stephen Harper's conservative coalition is made up of of social conservatism. It's made up of, of libertarians. It's made up of red Tories. They're sort of a, a of, of a of a broad cross section, and and libertarians and social conservatives are at least. Uh, in this regard, they seem to be opposed in their goals. So how do you manage? Well, I, I, I think the way to merge those, and I, I entirely see them as mergeable. I mean, I have great relationships with friends in the Christian Heritage Party as much as I do in the Libertarian Party of Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, I believe in what Grover Norquist fashioned as, as kind of the Leave Us Alone coalition, which is that social conservatives... Uh, don't want government uh, coming in to tell them how to run their church right. or how to run their school and uh, what they're supposed to believe in church or what they're supposed to worship uh, in church or, uh, you know, how their children are supposed to be raised uh, and uh, educated, etc. So, you know, those people say, leave us alone that way. Economic libertarians say, don't take money out of my wallet to fund things that I don't fundamentally believe in, that I don't think are the core functions of government. So on that note, there is common ground. There's a Venn diagram overlap between mm-hmm. libertines, economic libertarians even, uh, you know, libertines being the extreme of that, and social conservatives, you know, religious conservatives, um, to say, for example, we don't believe in uh, funding abortion. Right. Okay. Uh, I think truly principled libertarians would say that they don't believe that they should be funding a surgery for somebody else, you know, who uh, should be taking the responsibility for their actions in their own hands. And likewise, social conservatives would say, well, we don't like abortion, period, full stop. But, you know, all the more egregious for you, somebody to take our tax dollars and use it to promulgate these types of things and to... Uh, you know, take the lives of the innocent. So I think that that's a perfect place where they should be able to agree. I also think when it comes to conscience rights, libertarians in a principled way should say that, you know, no doctor, no nurse, no healthcare provider, no priest, no marriage practitioner, you know, et cetera, should, should be forced to perform a ceremony that they feel is antithetical to their beliefs. And I would go further to say that, you know, when it comes to the Canadian Human Rights Commissions, I think that a lot of economic libertarians would see value in saying, 
that those should be seriously curtailed or eliminated uh, because of their restrictions on the freedom of speech. And uh, so I, I think there's a number of areas where uh, libertarians, economic libertarians, libertines even, and social conservatives can have common ground. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that brings us to a, to an interesting question. You're a longtime Alberta politician, of course. And, and then how, how do we explain then, uh, you know, Alberta being a place that's packed with all of the above, uh, you know, the passage of Bill 10, which essentially eliminates conscience rights and parental rights in regards to education? Yeah, I, I think what you had there was one politician, namely Kent Hare, who was trying to appeal to a progressive vote in Calgary Center, mm-hmm. who decided to put this bill in the Alberta legislature and to stir the hornet's nest to basically activate the gay and lesbian community in Calgary Center to come out and support him uh, and to give him more support than, say, they would an NDP candidate in that uh, neck of the woods. And then what happened was you had parties that should have taken a conservative position, whether it's the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta or the Wild Rose Party, who uh, got caught up in the debate trying to position themselves in some sort of contorted, politically correct way, when I think a lot of the base of either of those parties would have said, uh, don't touch the issue. What's the point? You know, I, um, I think that uh, sometimes... You know, uh, conservative politicians, nominally conservative politicians, uh, bend over backwards trying to appeal to uh, progressive voters that, frankly, will never support them. And in doing so, alienate their own base of support. Mm-hmm. And that's it's sort of interesting just because Alberta is traditionally a place that has that leave-it-alone attitude. And, and I I was going to ask you, because a lot of people have been asking me this question, that in, in, in your opinion and based on your, your years of service in Alberta and your familiarity with the communities there and how the politics function, what do you think is the way forward then for those who are very concerned about things like Bill 10 um, that are, are essentially concerned that the, the leadership that seems to be cropping up, you know, from the, the, the rather traitorous Danielle Smith to, to Jim Prentice mm-hmm. and all, um, how they're trying to figure out how – you know, a province like Alberta ended up in the situation that they are, and how do they recover the freedom they lost to build right. that? You know, I'm reminded very much of a former boss of mine, David Somerville, at the National Citizens Coalition. When David said to me, he said, only support people or institutions so long as they uphold your values. Mm-hmm. And when they no longer do, just find something else to do with your time, your blood, your sweat, your tears, your energy, your effort, your money. Uh, that does support and uphold your values. And so I would say whether or not somebody has a membership in the Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta or the Wild Rose Party of Alberta, you know, support candidates, you know, for office or people running in nominations that uphold your values. And if you don't get that, well, nobody says that you have to go and door knock in your riding. You can go in the riding next door if there's somebody who's better on the issues that are near and dear to your heart, and, you know, continue to encourage people uh, to seek the leadership of political vehicles mm-hmm. that espouse your views and your values yeah. and, uh, and, and, and build the mechanisms, you know, that are necessary to win those types of races, right? right? So uh, generate uh, petition campaigns and start up organizations that are third-party advocates and, 
uh, what have you, so that when the time comes, you can put leadership uh, into those parties, those vehicles that represent your values. But then what happens in the face of, of betrayal? How can betrayal be responded to, for example, with this with this Bill 10 issue? Uh, the thing that I think surprised and, and shocked social conservatives the most was that the appointment of Gordon Dirks as education minister was, was seen by many people as Jim Prentice's nod to the SOCON votes that he needed to get elected. And then, of course, it was that very education minister that ended up, you know, in the academic parlance screwing over the SOCON voters. So besides, of course, sweeping them out of office, um, how can such damage be rolled back in the face of betrayal when they seem to have done uh, the right thing and seem to have actually gerrymandered a, a, a promotion, a cabinet minister very sympathetic to their cause, only to find out that that, that person, too, was willing to sell them out? Well, you know, ultimately, and, and the voters did this, they punished Jim Prentice, and they, they punished Gordon Dirks for going against uh, what the base of the party wanted, which is, is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look in, in, in the Republican context in the United States, you know, they certainly had candidates that were rhinos, uh, that were squishes, uh, that were wets, uh, you know, using the various parlance for the various countries, whether it's Canada, the United States, or Britain, for these progressive style of conservatives. Um and uh, but but you know the, the the people who were the true blues, the real conservatives, the SOCONs, you know, had to organize, you know, behind the scenes to make sure that they would get a candidate uh, like a Ronald Reagan, uh, like a Barry Goldwater, uh, like a Pat Robertson, you know, um, and like a Mike Huckabee, you know, the list goes on. Um, you know, and, and so it's important to make sure that uh, you, know, you, you continue to do that type of thing to promote those people and to, to get those opportunities. We're not going to necessarily win every single battle, uh, but we have to prepare for them uh, so that we can put forward our candidates, encourage them, and, and have, uh, give, give those people representing our values the best shot possible. So how do you see the progress being made for conservatives? We went from, you know, the Reform Party, where it's sort of a band of brigands showed up in Parliament and really started, you know, changing things up. And then, uh, you know, the various coalitions, which eventually created the Conservative Party that, that, that uh, went to victory in, in 2011 under Stephen Harper. How have you seen that progress? And, and for social conservatives, where's the good news in all of this? Well, I think there's been a greater realization among social conservatives that incrementalism is important, that in, in making changes to the abortion laws in the country, it's not going to be done holus bolus. It's going to be done incrementally as it has been in the United States. Um, I think there's a, a naivete of sorts has been stripped away, which I think is useful. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a maturing of the movement of the people in it. You know, for example, I've got friends of mine who run phone banks that do good work uh, to uh, go ahead and and uh, get uh, pro-life conservatives to take out memberships in political parties and a nomination contest and what have you. That's important stuff. You know, there's a constant maturing, and I, I would argue that it, it needs to intensify even more so uh, for us to see tremendous victories. You know, we had two ostensibly socially conservative candidates who ran for the leadership of the Ontario Press Progressive Conservatives and, uh, uh, you know, had, I think, a, a nominally better result as a result of that when, when you know, they were able to endorse each other. Um, 
you know, I, I think that that same type of approach would probably uh, be a good idea with regard to any future contests for the Progressive Conservatives in Alberta or for the Wild Rose, for that matter, and uh, to make sure that we, we build toward that. All right, one, and one more question before, before I let you go, and, and, and you don't have to answer this, but I, but I kind of have to ask. So what, what are your plans going forward? Well, my heart says that it would be good to set up a third-party uh, organization to uh, go ahead and train conservative activists, to mobilize them, to give them those tools, uh, like uh, Morton Blackwell and the Leadership Institute did with me and for me, and I, I think that that's needed. But, you know, the other part of me says that, uh, you know, you can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so maybe uh, I focus on real estate and being a landlord and that type of thing because that pays the bills. Right. Um, but I, I, I do, in my heart, want to do that important work uh, to fight the moral decay inside Western civilization and also, you know, battle communism and the other external threats. Um but uh, like I said, you have to you have to be uh, financially uh, savvy about these things. Of course. Well, Rob, thank you so much for taking the time. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for caring, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Member of Parliament Rob Anders discussing social conservatism and how Canadian social conservatives can make their voice heard in the political sphere. So for those of you who are frustrated watching the debates, watching the campaigns unfold, watching the news coverage, and not seeing much discussion of issues uh, that are near and dear to us and issues that we really believe indicate something essential about the moral health of our government, then I would urge you to heed the advice of Member of Parliament Rob Anders and to get involved in any way that you can. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. Thanks. Have a great weekend.